0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 10:19 through 25. Okay, please read with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Shelley. Well, good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. So good to be with you guys this morning. I think I almost lost my voice this morning. Uh, The worship was wonderful, so thank you for that, uh, worship team. Well, back in my college days, I went to school at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. Uh, I was looking for my very first professional internship, very first job, and I was fortunate enough to get a job with Motorola down in Boynton Beach, South Florida. And this was significant for me for a couple of reasons. One, I was studying electrical engineering, and I wanted to break into this high technology field, so that was really good. But probably more importantly, and more lasting, is that there was a girl down there. And her name was Debbie. And Debbie is still with me today, by God's grace. So, so that really worked out. Um, but Boynton Beach, uh, Motorola, that plant down there, uh, it was growing like gangbusters. Uh, they were building bu- buildings like crazy. They were hiring thousands of people because they were focused on one product and one product alone. And can you guess what that product was? Uh, I might, might date myself a little bit. This product was called the pager. The pager. Yeah. Or we called it the beeper back then. Um, and that's what they were focused on down there. But years later, something happened. Something came on the scene. Yeah, the cell phone. Not as slick and nice as this one, but the cell phone came on the scene. And what did the cell phone do to Boynton Beach Motorola? It obliterated it. It made obsolete that plant. In fact, if you go down to Boynton Beach today, some of those buildings are not even there. Motorola has no presence there. And so the cell phone made obsolete, or pretty much obsolete the pager. There's still a few of us out here who use them. Well, in a similar way, Jesus has made obsolete the old ways of living and relating to God. And he has given us a new and a better way. We're going to unpack this idea as we look at this uh, scripture in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We're going to do it this way. We're going to look at two gospel truths and three gospel applications. And I want you to to see that this is coming directly from the text The gospel truths are going to be set out by the word since. where you see the word since, this author is summarizing a gospel truth. And for the gospel application, you're going to see the words let us. You're going to see it three times. Uh, This is your cue that because of the truth that the author presented, he's following up with, here's how I would like you to apply it. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, this is a familiar pattern that you'll see over and over again. Uh, He actually does this about a dozen times in the book. So let's jump right in first and look at the first gospel truth. And you find it in verses 19 and 20. And it's this, that Christ gives us radically new access to God. I love that we sung about it earlier. Let me read it again for you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So Christ has given us a new way to God, a confident way. And we need to take a step back and ask, well, what was it like before? What was it like before? Well, the presence of God before Christ came on earth was primarily located in one specific spot on planet earth, and that was the most holy place inside the temple, or the, the predecessor of that, the tabernacle. And this place was very special. It was separated by a veil. The veil kept out every, everybody else. No one, no one can just go in there. You and I could not just go into the very presence of God. And there was only one person who could do this. And he could only do it one time per year. And so access to the very presence of God, that holy place was forbidden. It was off limits for us. And now what did it feel like to go into the presence of God? Well, only the high priest would know this. But I want you guys to put yourself in the shoes of that great high priest. If it was me being an engineer, I would have had a checklist, all the different things that I was supposed to do before I pulled back the veil. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and if you read some of it, you will know that there's all sorts of things that this priest had to do. He had a whole bunch of things. He had to wash his body. He had certain clothes that he would have to put on. He would have to prepare the sacrifices. He would have to take the blood and sprinkle it and do all these things. And if it was me, I would be trembling. I would be, wait, did I do it all? Did I miss something was there a blemish on that animal because to stand in the presence of God was at risk of death of your very life so you would be trembling you would be trembling but our scripture says before us this morning that we have confidence to enter this holy place now how is that why do we have this access and this is very fascinating the scripture says it's through the curtain that is through his flesh. So scripture is connecting that veil in, that separated the most holy place with the very flesh, the body of Jesus. And so think with me for a moment about this curtain. On one side of the curtain was the very presence of our holy God, deity, divinity, And on the other other side of the veil was humanity. And we have in our Lord Jesus humanity and divinity coming together in one body. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And that's how access is granted into the holy place. It's through the body of Jesus. Listen to this scripture from Matthew 27. This scripture is the account of what happened when Jesus was crucified at Calvary. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. When Jesus died at Calvary, God, he tore that curtain, that curtain that separated all of us from the presence of God. He tore it from top to bottom. And scripture is saying that curtain was the flesh of Jesus. You see, when Jesus died at Calvary, God tore his son from top to bottom. When the crown of thorns was pressed on his head, when the nails were pressed into his hands, into his feet, and the the spear was thrust into his side, he bled, his flesh was torn so that we could have access to God. Our scripture says it's by the blood of Jesus. And so it's through Christ alone, through his infinite blood alone, that we have this access to God. Well, the second gospel truth is this, that Christ is our ultimate personal advocate. And we see this in verse 21. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, I'm using that word, uh, agent, personal agent. He's our ultimate personal agent uh, because I really want you guys to understand what it means when Jesus is our high priest. I'll give you an illustration. If you're in the golfing world, you may have heard, how many golfers out there follow golf? Some of you. You may have heard the the name Mark Steinberg. Um, Maybe not, but If you haven't heard of him, you've probably heard of his most famous client. His most famous client is Tiger Woods. And Mark Steinberg is a sports agent. So what does he do? He advocates on Tiger's behalf. He mediates. He stands between the clients and Tiger, working out what's best for Tiger. His job is to get the very best and the very most for Tiger. And in the same way, Jesus is our ultimate personal agent. And I want to give you three ways that he is our ultimate personal agent. If you want more, and there's plenty more, you just go back uh, a few chapters and, and start reading. You'll see all the many ways he is our ultimate personal agent. And the first is this. He represents us at great personal cost to himself. He represents us at great personal cost to himself. Now, there's no other earthly agent like this. Mark Steinberg happens to be a great friend of Tiger Woods, but how far would Mark go to benefit Tiger Woods? He's not going to lay down his life for him. But that's what we have in Jesus. We have one who gave of himself for our very benefit. The second way Jesus is our ultimate personal agent is this, he knows us even better than we know ourselves. Let me read to you the scripture from Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. You see, Jesus, this is the incarnation, Jesus came. He put on human flesh. He knows what it's like to live in the brokenness of this world. He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and to have want and to have need and to see loved ones die. He knows you through and through. Now imagine this, I'll go back to the Mark Steinberg situation. Mark Steinberg's probably a great guy. And so he might be going to Tiger and say, Tiger, I've been working on the ultimate deal for you. I've been up night and day and I found you perfect client. That client's name is Pepto-Bismol. And Tiger's gonna say, Mark, I don't think you really know me that well. That's not the image that I'm trying to project. I don't need a lifetime supply of Pepto-Bismol. But Christ is not like this. Realize this. He knows you through and through. And therefore, because he's at the right hand of the Father, He can plead perfectly for you. He knows everything about you. He knows your desires. He knows what you need. And he's there before the Father, ever pleading for you. And so, the third way that Christ is our ultimate personal agent is this He's going to ensure your ultimate success. He's going to ensure your ultimate success. Now, Mark Steinberg cannot do this for Tiger. As you know, Tiger, he has to win tournaments. He's got to win major championships. He's got to perform. He's even got to make sure he cleans up his image and keeps it a certain way in order to be successful. But thank the Lord that we do not have to perform because Christ performed for us. The scripture says he went ahead of us. He went into the heavenly place with his own blood and he's gonna guarantee that you're gonna be ultimately successful. And what I'm talking about here, no, you're not gonna get sponsorships and money. I'm talking about things that the world is longing for, things that money can't buy. Jesus is gonna give you rest. Jesus is gonna give you peace that passes all understanding Jesus is going to give you joy in your heart. Your your body that's breaking down day by day, he's going to give you a new body. And if you're in Christ this morning, you're going to receive all of the benefits, all of the inheritance that God has for you in him. All of these things the world longs for and is grasping at and cannot get. Well, these are wonderful truths that we have this radical new access to God, and that we have someone that is at the right hand of the Father who knows us through and through, pleading for us, laying down his life for us, ensuring that we will be successful. And from that, I want to jump into the three applications. Okay, And I want to just make sure that this is clear, that when we look at applications or what it is we should be doing, this is flowing from the fact that we are already accepted by God because of what he has done for us it's not to be accepted by God that we're going to talk about these applications it's because we've been so dearly loved and accepted and so the first application is this that we're to draw near to God and we see this in verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water now this this is fantastic news that christ has made a way he is the great way maker he has made a way for us to go back and be reconciled to god and he's made the way through his blood through the tearing of his flesh and you might be here this morning wondering why, did, why didn't Christ have to be crucified? What was, you know, did he really have to do that? It sounds awful, and it is awful, because it's pointing to the seriousness of our sin disease, our sin problem that we all have in here. Now, when I talk about sin, I want to make sure that you understand what it means. It means a violation of God's holy law. And Jesus is going to summarize this in Matthew 22 very simply for us to understand. He says it this way, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our mind, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we sit there and meditate and think about this some, it doesn't take long to realize how far I fall short of this that god you know that i don't love god with every fiber of my being that's that's sort of my translation of that that i put my affections on other things and i make it higher than my affection for god i don't love him perfectly as i should he's the creator of all things he's the one who gave me life and gives me breath and i don't love him as he deserves to be loved and when the scripture says we're to love our neighbors as ourselves i think about this i spent a lot of time I spent a lot of energy. I spent a lot of money on me, thinking about me. If I'm to love my neighbors as, my, as myself, am I doing the same for my friends and for my neighbors? And I, I, I would say, no, I don't. I fall short. And the truth of the matter is that every single one of us falls short of the glory of God. We stand here with a sin problem that we cannot solve by ourselves. We need a Savior, and that's what this truth is, that Christ went before us offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. He is the cure for our sin disease. That's what Christ has done for us. And if you're here this morning and you're seeking to know more about Christ, I would urge you this way, draw near to him. Draw near to him. Hebrews 7 says it this way, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So draw near by putting your faith in Christ. Draw near in Christ. Now if you're a follower this morning, We're not gonna assume that you're always drawing near to the Lord, we know that there's seasons in our life that we stand far off for various reasons. You may be angry at God, you may be grieving, you may be hurting, you could be just simply busy. Maybe you're ashamed or fearful because of something that you've done. Or perhaps you've just grown lazy, and the encouragement from Scripture is to draw near. And I wanna remind you this morning of to whom it is that we get to draw near to. It is our Heavenly Father, a good Father, a loving Father, a Father who longs to hear from His children. Did you realize that? He longs to hear from you, He longs to give you good gifts. His desire and his delight is for you. He rejoices loudly over you with singing. This is the type of father that we have. And what child is there out there who, if they had a father like that, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, they would not go running back to their heavenly father. So the encouragement to draw near is the encouragement to come back to go running into the, the everlasting arms of your loving Heavenly Father? Do you know how deeply you're loved by Him? Well, the second application is this, to draw near in hope, and we do this by holding firmly, holding tightly to the hope that you have in Jesus. And it says this in verse 23, Let us hold fast, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, why would the author to the Hebrews have to encourage his audience in this way? Well, if we rewind back a couple chapters, go back to chapter 2, we'll, we'll learn something about this audience. They had the propensity to drift away from the truth, to forget the truth. And we can do the same. And something interesting happens. When you drift away from the truth, the solid truth of the gospel, how deeply and how dearly we're loved and how it was done for us and we don't have to do it ourselves, and we begin to place our hope on something else, we can lose hope. We can begin to think that our salvation is rooted in our performance or what we do. That our acceptance before God is based on something about me. And so taking our eyes off the truth can cause us to lose hope. And secondly, this audience, if we look in chapter 10, towards the the end of the chapter, we're going to learn something fascinating about these people. We're going to learn that these people were undergoing persecution, suffering. You know, they were being thrown in jail. Their property was being confiscated. We don't know anything about what it's like to have that. They were being rebuked in the public square. And so, when you're going through suffering, when you're going through trial, you can lose hope. All you have to do these days is turn on the evening news, right? Uh, And you'll lose hope. I'm reminded of the last few months of of seeing these uh, wonderful young ladies being murdered. You can get discouraged. I'm reminded of the missionaries to Haiti being kidnapped you can lose hope if you set your eyes on your circumstances you can lose hope the scripture is saying let us hold firmly hold fast to the confession of our hope and how can we do this how can we do this it says it this way for he who promised is faithful and so our hope rests in the fact. That God is faithful. It rests in his character. That he's 100% reliable. And this means that whatever God promises, he's going to do. And so the God who says to you that everything that's coming into your life, I've designed this for your good, for my glory, he's going to do it. And the one who promises to you, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. He will do it. He's the God who gives rest. He's the God who gives peace. He's the God who gives joy. He's the God who looks at the earth and sees and says, all of this evil that's prospering, it will go accounted for. I am making all things new. And we can bank 100% on this. So whatever it is that you may be facing this morning, whatever trial or mountain that's in your life, I encourage you, hold tightly, hold firm to this hope that you have in Christ Jesus because God who promises to you, he is faithful. Well, the last application is this. We should draw near to each other. Draw near to each other in this way by provoking and encouraging one another to live out these gospel truths. And we see this in verses 24 and 25. It says this in the scriptures, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That word stir up is an unusual word in the New Testament. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, we have this account. This is the start of the second missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And what happens? Well, in in short, they're going to split. They're going to go their own ways. Um, They have what is called a sharp disagreement. That word is paroxysmon. It's the same word that's being translated here, stir up. And so it has this idea of friction. 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 Maybe even irritation. Uh, some commentators like that word. So, but I don't want you to leave here thinking that I'm going to irritate my friend to love and good works. No, don't do that. Looking at the context, I think the NIV actually picks out the perfect word for this. It uses the word spur. We're to spur one another on to love and good works. And it, for me, it conjures up this idea of a cowboy. And he's getting on his horse. Uh, he's got his boots and his spurs on. And what's he going to do with his horse? Is he Every single time, is he going to jam the spurs in there and say, giddy up? No, he knows his horse, right? He knows that most of the time I get on the horse, I, I just touch it. I just tap. Sometimes I have to give it a little bit of a nudge. Sometimes my horse is stubborn and they're hung up. Uh, they're eating apples or hay. And sometimes I have to give it a pretty good jam in the side. And so in a similar way, we're to use discernment when we spur one another on to love and good works. When we're encouraging one another, we need to use discernment. The scripture uses the word consider. Consider. Consider how? And I love that word. Why? Because consider is an other-centered word. It's other-centered Meaning, I have to get outside of myself and I have to think about someone else. I have to think about their faith. I have to think about, are they loving their wife? Are they loving their Lord? How are they involved in the city? How are they benefiting those around them? Are they doing good works? And I have to think and consider ways that I can spur them on. Well, we can't do this type of spurring um, if we're not together. If we're not regularly meeting together, if we're not with each other, drawing near. And that's what scripture is encouraging us to do, to draw near to each other. Don't neglect the meeting together. Now, if you remember what I said about this original audience, you might have picked up on this. They probably had a pretty good reason why some of them were opting out of meeting together. And some think that this was written right at the time of Nero's persecution. And so to meet together would have been at great, great cost, probably cost of their life. And I think about our brothers and sisters all around the world, some who meet at great cost, but we don't have that here. I mean... Thank the Lord that we can meet freely and we can sing songs and we can have the Bible. We can even go to Panera or Starbucks and open it up and freely do that. And so I invite you and I encourage you, don't neglect drawing near to one another and doing this. Well, as I've uh, thought about this last um, application this past week, I, I was thinking about my own life and I realized how far I fall short of doing this. And I began to think even further, what would my church be like if I was considering my friends and considering ways that I can spur them on in the faith, considering ways to get them engaged in the city, and what if they were doing that for me? How would our city be transformed? And it's this question that I really want to leave with you this morning as I close. How would Lake Baldwin Church, by the grace of God, be transformed if you were spurring one another on, considering how to do that, to love and to good works? How would your city, how would your neighborhood be transformed for the glory of God? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has made a way Where we could not do this on our own, he has made a way for us to be reconciled and be in relationship back with you, and that is through the blood of your dear son. And so, Lord, we praise you, we thank you that we have this in him, and this great privilege, and we get to draw near. We get to be in the presence of the Lord. We get to have a firm hope that won't fade, and, Lord, we get to meet together and enjoy the fellowship of one another. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Help us to praise you evermore, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.